Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, the title of this sermon tonight, I don't, you might see it on your sheet there, is called How Christmas Ends a War. And tonight really is the nativity scene that you never hear at Christmas time. This is not your grandma's nativity story, I can tell you that right now. But it is one. And so I'd like to start by sharing a little, another little Christmas story. Uh, how many of y'all have ever heard uh, around Christmas time Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus? You know what I'm talking about? Hallelujah. Because that's Handel's Hallelujah. Very famous. And uh, it actually was not written uh, for Christmas. It was actually written uh, in the season of Lent for the celebration of the Easter holiday. And there is one famous, you know, part of that wonderful uh, oratorio, and it's, it's the Messiah, it's the Handel's Messiah's, uh, it's that Hallelujah Chorus, and you've heard it. Now, if you have heard it, I just want you to try to hear it in your mind for just a moment, and to think about how that song starts. It's Hallelujah, Hallelujah, you know, it's just tons of praise. And it's big. And all involved. And they're singing. Do you know they're singing about? They're singing about Jesus. And then there's this moment, about a minute or so, depending how fast-paced the song is sang, there's a moment where it gets quiet. And this is what the singers sing. They sing, the kingdom of this world. And the music's dropping out. And it says, is become... And the next beat, it's like the conductor pours forth his arms and just gives them the full throttle to scream out the next line. And here it is. The kingdom of our Lord has and of His Christ and of His Christ. Now what's so important about that? I just want you to begin to see that this song is highlighting. Here it is the very victory over Christ, of Christ over sin and death and all His enemies. And it sings about the fulfillment of what Christians have prayed for for centuries, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And in the same way as it exists right now in heaven, we pray that it would come to pass too in our lives in all of its goodness and splendor here on earth. Here on earth. And here's the thing. Because Revelation is telling us this, then you might say, what are you talking about? Well, I want, I'm trying to draw the threads together. Here it is. That line comes straight from Revelation chapter 11. 11.15, and it reads this. I just want, it, we didn't read that, but here it is. It says this. Revelation 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. But with the closing of chapter 11, which I admit we did not read, we get a new scene. We get a new window opening up. A new image. And it's one of a dragon. A dragon and a woman. And I just we have to push the story a little bit forward tonight to show you, here it is, how the story ends. First, we're going to see that there is a king, that there is a king, and two, that he has come, and that all ends well, that all ends perfectly well for Christ and his people. 
But it's also to show you that through the story, our story, that through that, that even though Christ reigns, that that is not a neat and tidy story. And Revelation 12 is going to show us that. Yes, it tells of enthronement. It tells of enthronement ever so briefly, as we'll see, and the way that evil itself responds to it. So I want to just talk about the big fat elephant in the room before we jump in tonight. And that's this. You can't be serious, Ryan. I mean, you can't be serious that you're going to stand up here on a Tuesday night and talk about a dragon and talk about a woman that somehow is fleeing off into the wilderness and talk about though this as though it were real. And I'm going to say, yeah, I know that's, I know that's in some of our minds but I'm still going to stand up and talk about it. And here's why. A lot of us sort of think that this sort of stuff in the book of Revelation is what, it's why we cannot abide with Christianity. It's stories like this of the supernatural, of things that are purportedly can't be seen, that just, I'm sorry, we live in too advanced of an age. Haven't we moved past this sort of primitive view of things, one might reason? But I want to suggest something. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he talks about this idea called disenchantment. And we live in a world that views the world as disenchanted, as opposed to a prior time in Western history that watched, and watched the world from a frame of being enchanted, of the world's intersecting, the seen and the unseen, a lot more married together than we currently view them in our world in 2019, in a post-Enlightenment Western culture. And here's the other thing. If you were to get out of the United States and go to another country in this world, the idea that we live in a world that's charged full and chocked full of things like spirits and demons and things we can't see are very much a part of reality. Well, that's very much the way that other parts of the world actually view reality. And so it would do us well, I think, to be humble for just a moment and say, you know, maybe there's actually another way to see the world. One that the way the Bible is actually putting forth. You see, if we don't, we run the risk, as I said, at best to be arrogant and at absolutely worst to be culturally imperialistic. So it helps us. It helps us to read the Bible on its own terms. I love what the, if you saw the movie, The Usual Suspects, long, long ago, Verbal Kent, played by Kevin Spacey, said this, and this is why we're taking a look at this text. He said this, and one of the very famous lines from the movie, he said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Maybe we Westerners have something to learn tonight. I think we do. And what I would like to show you is, is that beyond the tip of your nose, just beyond the other frame of reality, that Revelation chapter 12 is telling us about a king who has come, who currently reigns, and he will put every last enemy underneath his feet and will snap its neck. That's the great hope. That's the great hope of Revelation chapter 12. There is a battle going on. And if you are in Christ, you are in it. And it is serious business. This is a sobering talk tonight. And I'd like to show you three things. First, who is in the war? And secondly, not only who is in the war, but I'd like to show you as well the, um, 
The means, sorry, that's the third point. The means of victory is the third point. But secondly, I didn't have it up front, is the tactics of the enemy. So who is in the war? The tactics of the enemy and the means of victory, how the war is won. Let's take a look, first of all, at who is in the war. And I would like to suggest to you that there are three main players here, and certainly a fourth that I'm not really going to touch on, but the three main players that come to the fore immediately are this woman, the dragon, and the baby. So let's take a look. Let's take a look. Look with me at this verse, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Now this is a sign, and the sign is the woman. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and so on and so forth. And then there's the dragon and there is the baby. Now listen, some of these are quite easy. The dragon makes a lot of sense because John actually comes out and tells us who it is. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. There it is. The dragon is, picture, is a picture of who Satan is. Now this is important. He is not an evil force or some type of personification, but a personal created being. Keyword created though. And therefore part of the creation and therefore not not the creator or on par with the creator God. Evil in all of its forms, evil in all of its forms, even in this in this one called the Satan is parasitic at best. Evil is not absolute, but it is contingent in the language of philosophers. And the accuser himself is this way. That's the dragon. Secondly, the baby. Let's take a look at the baby. It's pretty straightforward. Verse 5 tells us this. Verse 5 says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, you might have heard that language when I read Psalm chapter 2 at the very beginning of our time this evening. And that is a direct reference. I'm just going to show you up on the screen here. Take a look up on the screen. This is Psalm Psalm chapter 2. Verse 9, I read it for us earlier. It says this, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. John is drawing on the imagery from this psalm to tell us that this is Jesus. That's who this is talking about. Secondly, the baby is Jesus. And then thirdly, things get a little bit more tricky because you might think that because that's the baby is Jesus, well, surely the mother is Mary. Well, yes and no. It gets a little tricky, but we're told here what it is. Take a look. Take a look. Did you notice this? It says this, that the woman was clothed with the sun and moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, what this is referencing is back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And that's the story where, do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph was one of 12 sons and he was a dreamer. And he had these dreams that he was going to be big and famous and that, that, that his brothers would in fact come down and bow down their feet to him. And in Gen- Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, we are told about a moon and a sun and stars that would bow down to him. What's this meaning that's telling us? This is telling us that the mother, the woman, yes, Mary is inclusive of that, but it is the people of God across the ages. And what this is saying is, is that from her, Christ has been born. Coming forth from the people of God is Christ Herself. I'm telling you, that is critical. Christ Himself, rather. That is critical because of where we're going to go later on. So that's who's in the war. And here's something that I want you to see. One, this means as God's people, you right now are engaged in a war if you are in Jesus Christ. 
That is exactly what this means. Whether you want to or not. And why is this so important? Remember, what have we said the book of Revelation is written to? We said that it was written to Christians who were struggling in their faith and who had become persecuted in light of that and those who had become complacent or dull or had fallen asleep. And here's the thing. If you're a suffering Christian and you can see the script, the world behind the world that's going on in your present reality, it gives you great hope to know that Christ is in control of that. But it also serves as a wake-up call for complacency. How so? Well, I love what the the author C.S. Lewis, he has this little book called The Screwtape Letters. How many of y'all have heard of it, familiar with it? Okay, great, a good number of hands. I totally recommend this book because it will really help you understand your experience as a Christian. What is it? It's It's a satire piece where an older uncle, an uncle named Screwtape, who is a devil, lowercase d, writes to a younger devil or a younger demon, his nephew, a, a one named uh, Wormwood. And he's instructing his young nephew on sort of how to be a master devil. So he's assigned a patient, which is a Christian, and he's given, that, he's given over to him to tempt him to fall away from their great enemy, who is God. Does this make sense? Because I'm about to show you some quotes from it that I think help make experience and help us to understand the way we understand our even complacency in the war and the battle that we're in. So there it is. Look with me up at the screen. Listen to this satire piece and how Lewis writes about it. I'm going to show you two quotes. It's really helpful. The older devil writing to the younger, giving instruction. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man, that's the patient, away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, and this is one you should pay attention to, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's given to us to help us to understand the danger of complacency. Soft underfoot. There's no signs. There's no signs saying if you go that way, there's destruction. That's not the way the enemy's going to work. It's why? It's too obvious. Soft underfoot. Look at the second quote, and perhaps it's more striking. He writes, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. Sobering effects. You're engaged in a war. Revelation chapter 12 is begging you to wake up and to see. And if you have perhaps become sleepy, this stands as an added warning to the danger that you're in precisely because you can't see what you can't see. If you are aware of something, can you be unaware of it? No. If you're unaware of something, can you be aware of it? No. Revelation chapter 12 comes to us to show us 
that there is a real war, a real battle going on. But that's not all it comes to show us. As I mentioned earlier, it wants to show us too the tactics, the battle strategy of the enemy. Now, uh, a, qu- a brief illustration before we get going. I mentioned a few weeks ago that when I was uh, after college, I went back and coached uh, lacrosse at a high school. And for those athletes out there, this will translate. You'll make, be able to make sense of this. But one of the things that you do as you get ready to compete is that you scout your team, right? Maybe it's a pitcher and the way he throws his pitches. Or maybe it's, you know the offensive plays that a football team runs, or if it's a soccer team, maybe it's their scheme about how they like to press forwards, you know, to the fresh, they would play fast soccer or something like that. But the key is, is that a good coach will what? Will help you to know how your opponent plays, their schema, how they engage. And you do well as their opponent You are advantaged when you know how they play. And what Revelation chapter 12 is showing us are the classic tricks of the trade of the one who is seeking to destroy us. Did you catch them in the text? They were right there. Verse 9, he says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Y'all one of the enemy's greatest tactics is to deceive. He loves the art of the lie, but but not ones that you can see. Like, think about it. Um, It's not like it's, these are like clear-cut lies. I think of like my children when they eat too much cake, you know, and like the icing is on their face, and I ask them, did you have some more cake when you weren't supposed to? Icing on the face. No, Daddy. No, no, no. Hmm, okay. All right. Let's go talk about that. You know what I mean? That's not the sort of lying that he does, right? It's subtle. It's subtle enough that you don't catch it. Remember, think about the, the lines of screw tape, right? He said this. It's not like, it's not like the devil is going to come to you in some sort of red face paint and say, bow down to me and give me your life. Or I'll stab you with my pitchfork. Okay? Like that's comical. And it's too easy. That would be too easy of a tactic. But instead it sounds something like this. You know, you really, uh, you really ought to go to church. That's true. That's a good thing. You know, it's important to be a part of a community, even if you're in college. It's important to find a family. It's good for you to find good leadership to sit underneath. These are all things for your spiritual good. But listen, listen. But make sure before you find a church that you can find one that meets all of your needs. Before you go, make sure that they have a really good-sized college group that you can be a part of. And make sure that um, the music is just right for your tastes. And you know what? One last thing. Make sure that it doesn't meet too early so that you don't have to be late when you go. Whatever you do, yes, find a church, but make sure that you find one that suits your needs. Do you see the deception in there? Do you see it? A good thing. And there's a little twist. Friends, there's never a better lie than a partial truth. And the devil 
is a ninja at it. And he seeks to deceive like crazy in light of that. But here's the thing I want you to see. This is the way the devil works as well, personally. And I'm going to tell you that he will take shots at you and your identity left and right. And I want to show you that in just a moment, but I want to show you the second thing. The second thing that's in his playbook. Verse 10, did you see it there? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For here it is, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The other, you know, sort of tool on his tool belt is to seek to remind God of the sins of his people. It's like the text is indicating that it's like, think about his persistence. He knows who God is. And he knows God knows everything at all times in all places. And his persistence is to hope for a lapse in that judgment. To be able to skirt in and to tell him about you and your flaws. That's his aim. And not just to the Father, but He will accuse you as well. And this is something that I think that we can see. I love what one pastor, after commenting on Romans chapter 8, I love this, this great line of hope. He writes this. This is Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now what this is saying is, is that this is the, this is the, this is the counterattack. For when the enemy loves to accuse you, is to say this, what have you got? You want to add some more things to your list? You want to look at my life and look at my story and sort of mount a case against me? Have at it. Jesus Christ is my defense. Mount your case. It will not stand. That's what he's saying. And I love it when Pastor John Piper says, he says it this way, none of your accusations stick anymore, Satan. You have been stripped of the one weapon with which you could damn us. Unforgiven sin. No more. No more. That's the great hope and the promise of the gospel. But here is the thing that you must see. The enemy will get at you relationally with yourself before God when accusations come. And the picture is, is the gospel in the gospel that God already knows them all and remembers them none. And so what we must do is we must take up the verdict that Christ has spoken about us and apply that to us. Let me just give you a quick illustration. A quick way to think about this. Let me see. Yeah, I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit and give you all this. Let's imagine for a moment that you are somebody who is in Christ. Somebody who is trusted in Him. And you go out and have a raging night boozing it up on one Friday or Saturday night. What do you do? Here's what the enemy does. You can't be serious, right? You're going to show up to RUF or at church on Sunday after that night? Are you kidding me? Do you realize how two-faced you are? Do you realize how insincere and hypocritical you actually are? 
Do you hear the accusations? And what the gospel is telling us is, let those mount. Because the therefore that Satan offers, you're not a Christian. God doesn't love you. He sees all of this just like I do. And that verdict could not be further from the truth. Here's what the gospel says. Yeah, everything, all of the charges are 100% true. And the verdict, because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, is not guilty. Righteous. And that's what you have to be able to do when you begin to sense the schemes. Y'all think this is joking around. I'm not. Peter says there is an enemy who is prowling around like a lion and who is ready to devour you. I could not be more soberly minded. And he's not going to come to you with red face paint and horns and a pitchfork. He is going to try to convince you on the basis of what you've done and left undone that Jesus does not love you and want anything else to do with you. And what the Gospel is telling us over and over again is that Christ knows the worst about us and embraces and loves us anyways. Do you know that? Do you know that to be true for your very own story? That is why this is so important that you understand the tactics of the enemy. Secondly, the tactics of the enemy. Thirdly, let's take a look at the means of the victory. I've already touched on it, and I want you to look at verse 11. And they have conquered. They have conquered. That is the brothers. They have conquered him, the enemy. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Those are the two things. Those are the means of our victory. How we find encouragement in the battle and strength in the battle as well. The blood of the Lamb, first of all. We've already talked about the Lamb who was slain. I told you it was the center of the book. It was the highlight of the book. The blood of Christ having been spilled for us. That's what we sang about tonight. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can wash us clean. And dear friends, here is the hope for you if you have trusted in Christ. You are clean indeed. Christ has washed you clean. And when you're able to take that truth and apply it to your story, you begin, frankly, to defeat the, in- the schemes of the enemy. That's how that works. Secondly, secondly, I want you to see this, the word of their testimony, even unto death. What does this mean? Well, many commentators talk about this, and I'm one of them as well, that that word testimony there is the broad sense of the testimony and the proclamation of the gospel. This certainly has personal testimonies, your personal stories. I want to show you in a moment why that's important. But it means in the big picture, what God's people, the saints, have testified about for all of eternity. That Christ is Lord, that He loves sinners, and He delights in calling them His own. And that story got hit on repeat for a long, long, long time. How far? As far back as the serpent is mentioned here in this chapter. Many of you will remember in Genesis chapter 3, life with God was perfect, wasn't it? God said He worked, walked in the cool of the day with the man and the woman until the pair, our first parents, ate the apple. Why? Because they were deceived by the Satan, by the, by the enemy. And God spoke to that 
serpent. And he said, you will be cursed. And from now on, there will be war between the children of man and between your offspring. And on the cross, what happened was that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent, just as it was talked about in Genesis chapter 3, once and for all, a decisive blow. A decisive blow. And what that means, y'all, is what I want you to see is, is that that story is what we tell one another over and over again. One of the things that we do in RUF, and I would invite y'all to think about this, when we share, when we get together during our weekly leadership meetings, one of the things that we do is we take 10 or 15 minutes and just simply share about what God is doing in our lives with one another. Some of those stories are actually quite vulnerable and profound, but they are a real gift to those who get to hear because by hearing the grace of God in our friend's life, we're reminded about that very same grace that comes to us. I just sort of ask you at the practical level, do you have a posse of people that you can do that with? That you can sort of cut through the noise with in your life? People that will walk alongside you and speak true things about who they are and about who God is to them? Do you have that sort of community while you're here at TCU? If not, you need to find it. And we want to be that in RUF for you. So maybe that's something you will consider. So you can cut through the like chatter, the, the sort of banal you know, conversations that happen on social media, the cynicism and the skepticism that I think, frankly, um, characterizes the way a lot of young men talk. But do you actually have a community on campus where you can say, let me tell you about what Jesus is doing in my life. It's hard, but He is faithful and good. The testimony, the testimony, the story of God's grace. Do you have people in your life that will tell you about God's grace? Because if you don't, you know what? You're a sitting duck. You're a sitting duck. And then Jesus gives it to us as His grace. Let me illustrate this like this. The testimony. Last week, a dear friend of mine passed away. A dear friend. He was a fellow campus minister. He went on to plant a church. Married and had children. Died of a pretty aggressive cancer in his early 40s. And as he was being treated for that cancer through the several months of his treatment, his wife had mentioned uh, to a third friend of ours who was relaying this story to me, she said, I am convinced, I am convinced that Jesus is going to heal my husband. And if he doesn't, I don't know if I'll be able to remain a Christian. That's how intense this was for her. Well, you know the story. He did not live. And my friend was asking her, well, how are things? How are you? And she's like, you know what? I watched my husband love Jesus and be faithful all the way to the end. I can't not be a Christian. I can't not be a Christian. The testimony of faithful men and women who love not their lives even unto death for the sake of Jesus. That is what this campus needs. 
That is what your life needs. Why? Because you have an enemy who would love to take you out. That's what this text is talking about. So what hope for us? Is there for us? What hope? Well, I need to begin to land the plane. But I want to just show you one thing about this and maybe illustrate this. I want you to see that when that baby came into the world, everything changed. Quickly, he was taken away to the throne. He is ascended. That's a very quick mention of, the sin, of his ascension and enthronement, which tells us that that day, the war itself was delivered a decisive victorious battle and yet the war itself while it was over small battles continue let me give you an illustration this is just perfect i'm trying to highlight the fact that the battle has been won minor skirmishes remain listen 1945 august 4th vj day that is victory over japan day Imperial Japanese forces surrendered to the Allied forces, ending the war in the Pacific Theater. One particular Japanese intelligence officer was flushed out prior to that surrender into the jungles of Lubang in the Philippines. And every soldier had orders not to surrender, and as an intelligence officer, he was to conduct guerrilla warfare no matter what the cost. Eventually, however, his commanding officer rescinded his orders, listen to this, in March of 1974. Almost 30 years later, let me explain. Hiroo Onoda had been living in the jungle for 30 years, believing the war was still going on. And in his mind, he was fighting the battle even though the war was over 30 years prior. Now just, do you get that image? I don't know of a better picture of what our enemy is up to in this current age. The battle rages on. The war is over. It is over. When the baby in the manger showed up, the plan was done. And when He returns on the clouds of glory, the plan will be finished. And until then, Satan is fighting a losing battle in a war that has long been over, seeking to take out those people whom Jesus has bled and died for, and He will not succeed. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And if you are in Him, you win too. End of story. Let's go home. But to encourage us along the way, to encourage us along the way, I want to read this very famous hymn from Martin Luther. It's up on the screen. Let's read it together. Maybe some of y'all have sung it before. It's this last verse here. And though this world with devils filled, should threaten, threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, 
For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him, shall make him fall, topple over like that. And you know what the one word is? Jesus. That's it. And until then, like we've closed every week, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray.